The longest season in Premier League history is finally at an end. But while the 2019-2020 campaign was unprecedented in so many ways, the final Sunday of the season brought with it the usual mix of joy, relief and crushing disappointments for most. How nice for you to join us as we review all the drama from yesterday's games as well as look back at the season as a whole, but also take a look ahead of the transfer summer window and of course ask you what your team needs to do to improve ahead of next season. Hello and welcome to the Hindsight Podcast. It's amazing to have you uh, join us on another episode of the podcast. Do well to subscribe on the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. Simply search the Hindsight Podcast and of course click the subscribe button. Let's get started because we have Olakunle Rafai who joins us or uh, as ever on another episode. Olakunle, it's good to have you join us. Great yeah, Premier League season, isn't it? Yeah, it feels good to uh, to be back on the pod. I mean, uh, what a season it has been. It's, uh, uh, like you rightly mentioned, unprecedented in so many ways. Um, so many things happen in the course of the season. You know, at some point we all thought, you know, uh, leagues across Europe was going to shut down uh, prematurely. You know, but eventually... You know, the majority of the leagues found a way to conclude the season uh, uh, properly, right? But uh, it's been an amazing season, uh, very, very uh, unorthodox, but also very enjoyable. Uh, f- fantastic as far as uh, the season's uh, length goes. It's been, uh, I read across one platform that it's been the shortest uh, time to win a Premier League title for a team, but the longest time for them to be crowned. And speaking of Liverpool, uh, clearly deserving champions. Well, uh, three teams began uh, yesterday fighting for one survival spot. Aston Villa, Watford and Bournemouth were separated by just three points and with almost identical goal differences as they all scrambled to avoid joining Norwich City in next season's championship. The Cherish began the day favourites to drop uh, from the Premier League, uh, but goals from Joshua King, Dominic Solanke and Junior Stanislas gave them hope against Everton at Goodison Park. However, Villa's points against West Ham was enough to keep them afloat as Watford were unable to recover fully from conceding three first-half goals at the Arsenal. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's double and Kieran Tierney's goal condemned Watford to relegation despite Troy Deeney and Danny Welbeck pulling them from, uh, you know, of course... Uh, those three uh, goals down. So the big story there is that Villa survived on its tenth final day. Well, actually, I mean, you've heard the the context to the relegation battle. Did you always feel like it would be Aston Villa who would survive? Because Bournemouth got a better team. They've been in Premier League for such a long time. What surprised you the most? Yeah, at first I I, I had a feeling there was no way Watford was going to get relegated because. Mm-hmm. They had the players, quality players all across. Was that the a feeling at the start of the season or at the start yeah. of the restart or yeah, at the, going at the, to the final day? At the start of the season, towards when their struggles started, yeah. right? So when they started struggling, I felt like, you know, whatever happens, obviously Watford cannot get relegated because they've got the players all across the field. Watford on a good day, on their own day, can give anybody in the Premier League a good run, a good game, right? But I think, I think the fact that of all the teams battling relegation towards the tail end, it was only what Watford wouldn't have that stability of who their manager is, right? So I think it was just... Because, I mean, firing three managers in the course of the season, you had Bournemouth, who decided to stick with Eddie Howe. You had um, uh, Norwich. No, I think it was. I think it was because you look across, you know, the country, you look across the, the, the football world and you're thinking, who exactly do you bring in? And why struggles like that, in my opinion, begins at the club. You have to depend, especially at a club like that, you have to depend more on the, the know-how and what the coach has built as opposed to when you're struggling at a big side. Well, it isn't the templates that when you're struggling for so long and in fairness, he's been given the whole season. You know, if you change something, isn't the, the normal argument that, you know, you can give you a new manager bounce that can yeah, save so- you? People, I mean, there's big Sam sitting at home doing nothing. People argue a lot for the new manager bounce situation, you know. Which and, works, to be fair. And it works, but I feel like it works more often than not with big teams because you've got quality players already. The new coach can come in and capitalize on the fact that, you know, you've got quality players anyway. The fresh breath of air can then propel them to start doing great things. With, uh, with um, I was going to say Sir Alex, with um, Sam Allardyce. Yeah. We've established he's an expert 
in that regard. And I don't think you can find anybody like him in the, in the league. I do not think you can find anybody like him in the league. Now, for Bournemouth, they're probably thinking, you know, when they probably prioritize how they play over bringing in a Sam Allardyce that can obviously come in and change things and show up, show up and make it very difficult to, to, for them to, to be defeated, to lose games, you know, which I don't think is very smart. But at the end of the day, I still very much believe that for a small team, it's always better to stick with a coach and what they've built. And I think Watford didn't do that. So I think it was one of the things that probably affected them the most. Well, one of the teams that stuck with their manager all through the season was Aston Villa and a very delighted Dean Smith who was uh, speaking uh, at full time and just how uh, much difficulties they had all through the season, even though it wasn't as documented as many or as his uh, team would have loved. Well, speaking of relegation battles, it's only right that we uh, switch our attentions to the activities at the top because Manchester United, Chelsea and Leicester battled it out for a final two places in the Champions League. It was ultimately heartbreak for Brendan Rodgers, Leicester, who had spent 312 consecutive days in the Premier League's top four until Manchester United's draw with West Ham on Wednesday. Speaking of the star man, Bruno Fernandes converted the penalty uh, from United for United from the spot, clearly, as it's been for uh, most of the restart after 71 minutes at the King Power Stadium, and Jesse Lingard sealed their 2-0 victory in injury time. At Stamford Bridge, two goals in first half injury time from Mason Mount and Olivier Giroud ensured the FA Cup finalist Chelsea a win that knocked out Wolves of the guaranteed Europa League positions. Wolf, of course, began the day six, but Tottenham climbed above them on goal difference with a draw at Crystal Palace, where Harry Kane's goal was enough, of course, only cancelled out later by Jeffrey Slop. So the big story there is that Leicester missed out on the top four. Must be a heartbreak for Leicester, luckily. It's, 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 so, it's so sad for them because, uh, I mean, at the start of the season, at first, people, a lot of, a lot of football fans felt like you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't pick out Leicester to be in that fold at the start of the season, right? But they did something amazing. Brendan Rodgers had a very, very good run at the start. And quite unfortunate, where, where you have to understand the fact that they're just still a little bit below the level of getting to top four comfortably or getting to top four constantly. A lot of people talk about the injuries. Is, is that not a valid point? Obviously, that's it, that's it. And that was exactly where I was going. At the time where Jamie Vardy was injured, interestingly, he still found a way to win the Golden Boot. Was it, at the time he was injured, there was nobody that was, you know, that was shouldering that goal-scoring, you know, uh, uh, responsibilities for them. And then they lost Madison towards the tail end. They definitely missed him since the restart of, uh, of football after the lockdown. So there, there's that level that they need to climb to. Get a couple of quality players in. When you lose some of your quality players, either to loss of form, injury, suspension, you know that your team can kick on. It didn't work for them after football restarted after the lockdown because... Obviously, they missed a player like Madison. But also, there was something about their form. Before the lockdown, at the time where Vardy and Wilfred Ndidi were injured, they lost too many points. You know, those were points that if they had gotten those points, they would have been safe and sound in that top four position. Didn't happen for them. I think Brandon Rogers, obviously, coming in first season, has done an amazing job, irrespective of whether or not they made the top four. Now they need to go back and look at players that they can bring in that can really, really solidify the score. Mm, improve the team is certainly something uh, Brennan Rodgers would be thinking about, especially after losing uh, his right back, who was one of the best right backs in the Premier League, Ricardo Pereira, and also losing uh, uh, Soyuncu at centre-back. But it wasn't to be as Leicester finished fifth and qualified for next season's Europa League. Of course, with Jamie Vardy uh, winning the Premier League's Golden Boots. He becomes the oldest player uh, to win the Golden Shoe. So that's an amazing uh, stuff for him. Remember, he only he just started playing uh, Premier League football at 27. So it's quite an astonishing record. He's just become one of the uh, great stories of uh, non-league football. Uh, same, some, similar to N'Golo Kante, something like that. Well, then, let's move away from Leicester. Because um, before we uh, leave Leicester City, one of the stats we must put out is that uh, Leicester spent 30 match days in Champions League positions, which is something uh, oh, they, out of 38, which is something they would uh, absolutely loathe reading over the next uh, couple of uh, days, uh, you know, over the next couple of weeks or months, I'm sure. Uh, next season certainly would hold better things. Another stat to uh, maybe look away from if you're a Leicester City supporter is that with 14 points, uh, a league which they had over Manchester United in fifth uh, Champions League uh, back in January. United clawed back those points and, of course, eventually 
uh, finish ahead of them. So um, not a great way to uh, finish season, but uh, like I luckily mentioned, uh, top flight is about getting in some quality replacements for the players you already have. One of the things we want to talk about on the podcast today is the awards. Of course, we've mentioned Jamie Vardy's uh, Golden Shoe Award. And another big contentious point on social media is the FWA, the Football Writers Association uh, Award, which goes to the best player in the Premier League as judged by uh, football writers. Uh, Jordan Henderson clearly emerging victorious, Kevin De Bruyne in second position, Marcus Rashford in third place. What are your thoughts on that? Because it's been such a, a volatile point on social media, deserving or not? Yeah, I, I, based on what they've done on the pitch, all of the players in the Premier League, this is obviously you can't give it to Jordan Henderson. But the story around Liverpool and the build up to them winning the title is, is the story has been powerful, it's been remarkable. 30, a 30 year wait for, for the Premier League title. So there's been so many positive stories, so many fanfare around them uh, that has created some sort of a, some sort of um, a, a solid narrative even around some of their players. And obviously, I'm happy for Jordan Anderson. If it's down to what has been done on the pitch, obviously, he doesn't get into my top three, you know. But I also understand his story, where he, he where he, you know, he came from, from Sunderland. To not being the very, the, not being you know, not even getting to the Liverpool squad, to being the captain and being one of their most important players, but I don't think he come close to winning the best player of the season after having the kind of season that every club. You look at Kevin De Bruyne. This is the season that equaled the, the assist record of Thierry Henry. Scored some remarkable goals in the course of the season. You look at Sadio Mane. Mane has had two amazing seasons. You know, from their Champions League winning season to the just concluded season. So obviously it doesn't get to my top three based only on what has been done on the pitch. But like I said, every player that has won, be the Football Writers Award, the PFA Player Award, there's always some sort of fanfare around them in the media. There's always some sort of narrative that has been driven in their favor in the course of the season. This time around, yeah, this time around, I think the fact that Liverpool were coasting to the title after waiting for 30 years. Obviously, did Henderson a lot of good. Yeah, certainly Henderson, uh, one of the uh, most uh, bright or the brightest, uh, if, if you're a Liverpool fan, one of the brightest stories of Liverpool's uh, triumphant uh, season in the Premier League. But uh, just to expand a little more on that conversation, and, and this is what I, I personally think. You know, football writers are, are human beings. And in the end, it's called the Football Writers uh, Session Award for a reason. And... Um, I would say in a peculiar year, you know, where, you know, football has taken a backseat and myself and you and everybody included, uh, inclusive, would have realized that our lives are in many ways inconsequential to the, in the grand scheme of things. To have the humanitarian work which he did off the field, you know, uh, the players together, uh, initiative gathering all uh, 20 captains of the Premier League teams to raise uh, something in, in the region of, I think, 20 million pounds to, uh, you know, feed people. But football writers would have been bombarded by that sentiment. Yeah. And you can understand maybe in a regard that in a peculiar year that they've decided to reward um, Jordan Henderson from a humanitarian point of view. Yeah. Because if you, if you factor in Marcus Rashford coming in a third, it clearly has to be the reason. You know, that, that obviously would have played a very big role. And why I would agree with that, because, I mean, you would say that it's a football award, so the, the, the criteria should be based solely on football. Yeah. But like you said, it's, a, it's, it's, been, it's been a peculiar year. It's been a, an uh, unprecedented season of football, unprecedented year, generally in the lives of everybody around the world. So you have to be able to, you know, appreciate people who have gone out of their way to do something special for people who have been at the forefront, you know, fighting to save the li people's lives, you know. So in that regard, you would agree, yeah, you know. The, I mean, you've got how many players playing professional football in the Premier League? Yeah. So if one player in Jordan Anderson is saying, you know, I'm going to bring people together, let's donate, that, that's a huge gesture. So yeah. I, I, I quite agree. It makes a lot of sense to want to reward him in that regard. Yeah, you just feel ultimately that the football writers were torn between two schools of thoughts. You know, do we reward the humanitarian work he's done and the footballing aspects, which, of yeah. course, uh, is where 
we would have loved to stay on, but of course, it's still a great and deserving award for uh, Jordan Henderson. Well, let's pick up the pace now and move on to uh, Jose Mourinho, who has gotten Spurs uh, to back where they belong, in his opinion, uh, because he was speaking to the media and he was in confident mood after Sunday's 1-1 draw at Crystal Palace as he secured a sixth-place finish and a potential spot in the Europa League. Well, Spurs, who were 14th uh, when Mourinho, of course, took over in November, have collected 18 points from nine games since the restart, with only Manchester United and Manchester City winning more games. Uh, Mourinho, of course, was speaking to the media, and he said, I want to have my team, my players, not the medical room full of players. I want to have pitch, a pitch full uh, of players. And uh, he says this is where they belong. And I'm sure he is looking at the table in isolation to when he took over the job, which according to the stats I just reeled at, they would be comfortably in third or fourth uh, position. Is that where they belong, Tottenham? Is that where that squad is capable of, of finishing in a regular Premier League season? Well, when you bring in a manager like Jose Mourinho, that's, that's what is in your subconscious, even if you don't consciously speak it out. You know, he's the kind of guy that comes in, wins titles, in and around top four, always getting into top four, going into Champions League football, you know, and I quite agree with him. It's simple. Since they arrived at Tottenham, they will be fourth position comfortably. Champions League football. So that's why beyond what, you know, has been said in the media about whether or not Tottenham are going forward or backwards since Mourinho arrived, you have to look at the numbers. You know, this cannot be the only time that we fail to look at the numbers. Yeah. If you look at the numbers, he has done remarkably well. Yeah. You know, so because everybody talks about stats. Everybody talks about the number of goals this person has scored. When we want to, eulogy, uh, when we want to uh, uh, give praises to yeah. the likes of Ronaldo yeah. and Messi, yeah. we bring out the stats. So now let's look at the stats. It's been amazing. Since the, since the, and let's also bear in mind, when at the time where he came into Tottenham, there were so many injuries. Yeah. Harry Kane was injured. Nobody to replace Harry Kane at the time because Loris you know, also exactly. So you bring in you bring in Son to you know to be to play that Harry Kane role when Harry Kane is not around. Yeah. But he's, he's he's not that striker. But at some point, Son was also not available. So the kind of job he has done with the resources that he's had. There are very few people that would have been able to pull it off. There are very, very few people that would have been able to pull it off. And that's just what it is. So you've got to give him credit. And from where they stand right now, going forward to next season, is a lot of positives. Harry Kane ended the season scoring lots of goals. Yeah. Scored back-to-back. He would have felt a bit bad that the season is coming to an end because he looks in the mood for it. Exactly. You know, he would have, you know, he would have, you know probably continued scoring goals, yeah. you know, every single game. So from where they stand right now, going into next season, it's a lot of positives to take into next season. Certainly a lot of positives for uh, Tottenham, but one of the uh, maybe uh, not positives, but of course the celebration is that Jan Vertonghen has confirmed he has left Tottenham Hotspur also with the legendary uh, Michel Vorm. Of course, it was widely expected, but the Belgian defender uh, has confirmed now that he is leaving Tottenham after eight years in North London. Just quickly on Jan Vertonghen, uh, where does he rank in your opinion of of, of centre backs? I mean, clearly one of the stalwarts of that Tottenham revolution under Pochettino. What would what would, what would he be remembered for the most? Solid defender, as far as I'm concerned. The fact that he didn't win anything under uh, Pochettino is a is a huge. Uh, 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 stain yeah. is a huge indictment because at some point Ventogen was at the same level with any Premier League defender at the time. Yeah. You know, every single striker in the Premier League would have dreaded playing against Ventogen. And you look at the man, at some point he's gone out to play at left back, he's played in a back four, he's played in a back five, he's played in a back three. It's, I, I think he's done everything on the pitch to prove he's a solid defender, he's a top player, like I said. The fact that they didn't win anything, when you begin to name the greatest defenders of the Premier League, you might not be able to put him there because then they, they didn't just crack that level of winning titles. But safe for that, I think, is a, is a solid, solid, solid defender and top player. A big miss for uh, Tottenham. But on the flip side, uh, Eric Dyer signed a five-year deal, a new five-year deal, I beg your pardon, and would be at Tottenham. Hopefully, hopefully he will take over uh, the uh, guard from Jan Vertonghen. Right, uh, we've just spoken about one uh, important to the Premier League, which we all uh, loved watching, and it would not be complete without mentioning uh, the maestro, David Silva who 
of course, uh, ended his time at Manchester City. What an amazing player uh, to have the privilege. We have had the privilege to watch him for the last couple of years. And what does he represent for um, imports into the Premier League? I think he, he represents, you know, a class of professionals that, 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 look, that are looking to go, like they're going into extinction right now. You know, a very, a very uh, threatened group of players, you know, because right now everybody wants to play very high press. You know, a lot of teams now play without a conventional number 10, you know, without a, a sole creator of the team. But David Silva is one of those players that when you begin to think about players who, who, just, who just make it seem easy on the eye. You know, they call him Merlin. That's the, that's the nickname. So when, when you call a football player Merlin, that means it makes things happen that nobody, you know, is a magician, basically. And that's exactly what it is. At the time when he came to, Chelsea, to, to City, I was worried because of the physical nature of the, of, the, of the Premier League. But what he has been able to do at Manchester City, season in, season out, you know, being able to put them at that pedestal where they play against any team, you know that you are facing a very solid side because you know how much this person can create. You know, you want to know how good Silva has been for Manchester City all these years. You just ask Aguero. You know, you ask Aguero, you ask some of the players that has played it, the Ayaturis of this world. He's been, he's been such a remar remarkable player. I don't think, you know, if the Premier League is going to see another player like David Silva, it's going to take a really, really long time. It's going to take a really, really, really long time. In many ways, does he represent uh, the... What we talk about, you know, foreign imports into the Premier League, you know, you talk about Jose Mourinho opening yeah. the door for foreign managers, you know, Portuguese influx yeah. into the Premier League. Does he represent that opener for the Spanish contingents to come in in mass? You talk about his physicality, which was a major point when he came to the Premier League. Would he be able to compete? You know, Premier League was Vieira, it was Roy Keane, it was Makaleli, it was this big players he would be opposing because those were the players in the defensive midfield positions. You know, when you look at Juan Mata, you know, Ozil, you look at the, now James Madison and the rest, he's, is he the, the, the opener for such players to now start thriving in the Premier League? In a way, he is. In a way, he is. Because, I mean, 10 years in the Premier League, he came in, that means, around 2008, 2009. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, we've had Spanish players play in the Premier League before then. But in the shape and form of the kind of player that he is, with his, with his physical, with his stature, yeah. and the excellent, excellent football brain that he has, he more or less seemed like the guy that opened the door for those sort of players to come, and the rest you, you know, to come into the Premier League. For example, when Mata was going to go to Chelsea, that conversation came up. You know, yeah, he's very small. We're not quite sure if he's going to do well because of the physical nature, but a lot of people refer to David Silva and how well he has been doing at Manchester City. So... In that regard, he might have been that guy who a lot of Spanish players will look to and think, if he can do well in the Premier League, then I can certainly do well in the Premier League. So it's about the, it's about the brain. It's about the football brain. Football, at the end of the day, is about you know, picking out spaces. Yeah. And nobody does it better. Very few people can do it as well as David Silva. Is he the most technical player you've seen in the Premier League? Mm, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough one. I don't think so. Because, I mean, JJ Okocha was in the Premier League. Um, that we, we've had some really, really good technically gifted players, but in terms of what they've been able to achieve with their technicality, it might be right at the top. Because you look at JJ Okocha with everything that he could do, he played for Bolton Wanderers. Yeah. You look at Alexander Lebar Arsenal. That was another amazingly gifted player technically. Eventually went to uh, Santi uh, Cazola as well. But with what they've been able to achieve with what they can do with the football. Yeah. Silva will most certainly be at the top of that list. Certainly one of the best, certainly the best player in tight spaces, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. Um, when you think about the, the, the revolution at City, Yaya Toure is coming, attracting big players, Sergio Aguero, Vincent Company, and David Silva. Does he rank on the same level with those players or is Aguero, say, a level higher because of no, what he's done? Absolutely. I, I think he's on the same level. I think because everything Manchester City has achieved... In the Sheikh Mansour era, the receiver is right at the center of it. Everything they've achieved, the Premier League titles, the FA Cup titles, the receiver is right at the center of it. I think, you know, save for the arrival of players like Kevin De Bruyne, if you take David Silva out of that Manchester City, they will struggle to achieve some of the, you know, successes that, that, that they were able to achieve. So right at, the right at that level with, with company, with, with, with Aguero and all of those great players that would you know, we've come to know with Manchester City.
Mm, certainly a, a good um, a time to talk about David Silva. But of course, it will even be better if he goes on to win the Champions League, yeah. uh, which they are one of the odds-on favourites to do it. Uh, it will be such an incredible um, um, close or curtain closer uh, to uh, David Silva's fantastic stay in English uh, football. Uh, let's talk about Chelsea because um, it's a good time to be a Chelsea supporter, especially going into the final day. We thought Wolves are a very notorious side for picking up notorious points and being very rugged. Chelsea dispatched them easily. And it's got to be said, Chelsea have found it easy against Wolves this season. Uh, beat them 5-2 in the first leg, you know, made light work of them on the last day with so much pressure. Just how much of a task did Frank Lampard have going into the season? Um, obviously, well-documented, losing it in Hazard, not being able to sign players, second second year in the, in the managerial role. How big a job has he done at Chelsea, Frank Lampard? I, I mean, I think, I think it's huge. From the perspective of being Chelsea Football Club, you would think you have to get into top four. Right. You know, but coming into the job, as far as I'm concerned, the odds were stacked against him. From the history even of man of managers at the club. You know, rookie managers haven't had it easy at Chelsea at all. You know, AVB came into Chelsea off the back of winning the league title with Porto. And Porto by all means are not a small side. So AVB came into Chelsea and just couldn't handle it. So rookie managers haven't had it easy. Even with Roberto Di Matteo eventually won the Champions League, didn't go well for him at all the following season. So yeah. the odds were kind of stacked against him. So Add that to the fact that he couldn't sign players, you know, the conversation would be around, we're not certain if the players that he's got right now are the kind of players that he wants to play, you know, are the kind of players that he wants to use. So the fact that he could not sign players, you know, losing the best player at, at the club, the odds were stacked against him. It was a case of, let's see what he can do, you know, let's see what he can do. But didn't you know? that also, in many ways, uh, create a, a safety net, uh, some sort of calm around the place that, look, you're going to work, we're going to give you time. And that, that does wonders for a manager's confidence and the, the mood around the club. Yeah, also. absolutely. It, it, felt like, it felt like, you know, if we, if, we, if we don't do too well by Chelsea standard this season, we're going to have next season. Yeah. You know, because now, I, I, you know, I, I couldn't sign players. You know, we lost Eddie Nazar. You know, I'm just coming in for the first time in yeah. the Premier League. So, and then... Chelsea legend, obviously. Yeah. So that created a bit of a, a bit of a safety net, like you mentioned, for him as well. You know, but I, I but I feel like off the back of the fact that majority of the standard performers for the team eventually, at the end of the season, uh, some of the guys are playing the Premier League for the for the first time. And at the start of the season, nobody would have been able to predict to say, you know, Tammy Abraham is going to get you 15 Premier League goals. Um Messi um, Mount is going to get you eight Premier League goals. Nobody would have been able to predict that. So it felt like the odds were stacked against him in that regard. Obviously, is that, his, is that his biggest legacy this season? You know, obviously Chelsea are a top team, qualify for the top four will always be yeah. a minimum requirement. But when you look deeper at the at the, the picture, those young players representing Chelsea's long-term future is that the ultimate? Um, achievements of, of Frank Lampard's time? I mean, he's going to take it. Even if at the start of the season, he wasn't thinking about deliberately trying to achieve something at the end of the season by using young players. Yeah. But how it has happened, he's obviously going to take it. You know, but I feel like, you know, it was also out of necessity that he had to use some of those young players. Yeah. You know, but I quite agree with the fact that going forward, it feels like he has done a remarkable job because of the amount of young players he has been able to use mm. and how they've been able to perform. Mm. I think even though he sounded like he was being too humble, but I quite agree with him when he said it was a team job and it was more the players because it felt like a lot of those players had to rise to the occasion. Yeah. You know, we've had players coming to the Premier League for the first time and they struggle. Some of them coming for a lot of money and they coming for the first time they struggle. But lots of those players had to rise to the occasion. Mm -hmm. You look at the final game of the season against Wolves. It was the academy. Uh, 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 it was one of the young players also coming through the academy that eventually, you know, made you know the three points for the team. So in that regard, obviously, it'll be part of his legacy. Uh, certainly part of uh, Frank Lampard's legacy. Let's then talk about uh, the goalkeeping situation at Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea have been so used to a stable goalkeeping situation for such a long time. Of course, since uh, the Roman Abramovich uh, takeover. It suddenly feels very strange for Chelsea fans that they're having uh, lots of problems. But in many ways, that has been Chelsea's 
uh, shift in the last two seasons. Defensive problems, a bit of attacking prowess, but of course sacrificing their defence for it. What is the way forward with that Chelsea goalkeeping problem? Kepa not looking like we'll be given a bit more time. Uh, who would you rather have there that's been linked with Andre Onana, who I think would be a cheaper option and a stable yeah. option, can play out from the back. Um, Yano Black is the obvious big name to join, but that will cost a lot of money. Uh, Chelsea have shown that they have money to spend. Who would you rather have there? First name of mine is Yano Black, because even before Kepa was brought in, the favourite for myself was always Yano Black. And the decision to bring in Kepa was rushed because at the time, right after the World Cup, Courtois made it clear he wanted to leave. So there was a there was a need to bring in a goalkeeper at all at all costs, right? So it was a it was a rushed decision. It was a panic decision to go and, and bring in Kepa. But we are not black. It's going to be expensive. Kepa was expensive anyway. He's the most expensive goalkeeper in, in, in world of football right now. So you're not black at the time, irrespective of what Atletico Madrid are asking for right now. Feels like the perfect, you know, replacement. Andrew Nana is very good, but for every goalkeeper that comes to the Premier League, I feel for I feel for their effectiveness if they don't have adequate height. Andrew Nana will certainly uh, be uh, looking forward to a big move this season. But hey, Ajax would have a lot to say about uh, if he eventually leaves uh, the Amsterdam Arena. Well, speaking of that, let's get into the transfer window because it officially opens today. And the 2019-20 campaign has uh, given us some great football. But I'm sure, regardless of the pandemic, might soften the transfers a little bit. But we're in for an exciting uh, seven weeks up until the Premier League uh, effectively uh, kicks off. Uh, that can only mean one thing. Um, links, players, rumour mills, the bandwagon and whatnot. Um, if you think about uh, the transfer window in many ways, you think about... Uh, Jaden Sancho, who has been linked with United so many times, and uh, the Athletic are reporting now that United are now ready to make sure that that move uh, is sorted. And another reporter saying that Ole has done his own part of the bargain. It's now the time for the clubs to uh, give their own part of the bargain. Jaden Sancho, is he what United need? Clearly, a top quality player, but unproven in the Premier League. Um, there is that conversation as opposed to Jack Grealish. There was Madison at one time that has quieted down. Is he the player United should go for as opposed to Jack Grealish? I think, obviously, you want to bring in lots of creative players into the side. The issue is on unproven in the Premier League. But sometimes you have to take that risk as well. You look at Jadon Sancho that took Pulisic out of the team at Dortmund and Pulisic is doing so well with Chelsea before the end of the season. And now we're talking about Sancho being unproven in the Premier League, which is true. But the big issue is the, is the, is the transfer fee that he'll be commanding if he's going to move to Manchester United. Personally, I feel like bringing a Jack Grealish. Well-proven, Grealish to me seems like a player that's technically gifted enough to do well at any club side anywhere in the world. Because he's, 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 he's got the skills, he's got the temperament, he's got the... He's got the mental ability to handle the pressure. As proven, as proven as by what he's done. You know, what he's done with Aston Villa. So he's the captain at Aston Villa. A club you know, came through the, the, the championship to the Premier League, struggled with relegation towards the end of the season, and he has been their hero all through the season. You know, that shows a lot of quality, not just individually, but also what he, what, what he has mentally. That is somebody that is proven. I'd rather you go with a Jack Grealish. But there's something also exciting about an electric winger that's got pace, that can bring in crosses, that can take on anybody, that can go past defenders at will, you know, that just excites fans and, you know, uh, administrators at clubs. So I think it's down to how much money the board at Manchester United are ready to splash out at the end of the season, you know, in the transfer window. Because the way it's going, you look at the gap between Liverpool, City, and then Chelsea, United. If you can bring in Grealish and Sancho, by all means, do it. Because at the end of the day, you want to improve your squad to you know, to, to an unprecedented level. The reason why the conversation with Madison has quieted down is because you've been able to bring in Bruno Fernandes and has done well. Now, towards the tail end of the season, people started figuring out the fact that Fernandes was the reason United were playing so well. Yeah. And they started targeting the man. So how about you bring in a Jack Grealish? If you can bring in Sancho also, that's fine. If Bruno Fernandes is not playing so well, Jack Grealish, if he's injured or whatever, Jack Grealish can easily slot into that number 10 role. Yeah. Jack Grealish can easily slot in, you know, 
left side of the midfield or left side of the attack, that's the kind of player you want to have in your team. If you can play for Aston Villa and still be able to create so much, the most fouled player in the Premier League this season, that's the kind of player you want to have in your side. So as far as I'm concerned, Jenny Sancho is an exciting player to have. You know, if you can get him, get him. But by all means, do not miss out on getting a Jack Grealish. Uh, certainly, Jack Grealish uh, would be a player whose phone uh, would be very busy all through uh, the seven weeks of this summer. And I'm sure he needs a rest because he looks uh, pretty uh, jaded. Well, uh, my United fans are getting our mentions on social media. Uh, please do subscribe to the Hindsight Podcast uh, on your preferred podcast platform. We're on Google and Apple uh, Podcasts. We're also on Anchor as well. Uh, simply search for the Hindsight podcast as spelled and of course subscribe to uh, the channel you can also uh, be a part of the uh, website conversation uh, simply uh, visit www.walexis.com for all the breaking news uh, all through the summer right let's get away from uh, that because Kingsley Coleman has also been mentioned in Manchester United um, is that a, a nice strategy to tell Dortmund we have a you know a, a plan B yeah. in many ways so do not tarry so much on making up your mind. It's a good strategy, isn't it? It's, I, I, I certainly don't feel like United are serious about Coleman. And I don't think Bayern Munich are serious about letting Coleman go. I think even if Bayern Munich are willing to let Coleman go, United have got to take into consideration how, how much he's been injured in the course of his career. You know, it's quite unfortunate because he's, he's such a talented player. Yeah. But then, top Teams want players who will be consistently on the pitch. So I don't think United would be you would be serious about bringing in Casey Coleman when you got the option of Jenny Sancho. So I might want to agree with you. It might be a PR strategy to try and push Dortmund to say, you know, if you I, the way I see it, Jenny Sancho himself would be willing to move. Mm. Would be willing to move because yeah, exactly because it feels like he's got unfinished business at Manchester United uh, at, at, in England, and United would be delighted, no doubt to bring in Sancho, and then he begins to play very well. Obviously, City would definitely, you know, feel sad to see that. Well, a United delights, according to uh, Olakule uh, Rafai. Let's get on to Chelsea, uh, which uh, is a club dear uh, uh, to you. Kai Havertz has been uh, the next big transfer. Muted to Chelsea, uh, Fabrizio uh, Romano on Twitter has been uh, touting that transfer. Is it a case of here we go for Chelsea as far as that transfer goes, you're worried about the defensive positions. We've talked about that in detail. Is that what they need, Kai Havertz? They've got lost to streak. They've got Ross Barkley. They've got Mason Mount in that position. Of course, uh, Pedro has left now. William is still potentially going to be there for another year or two. What is uh, the uh, priority for Chelsea this, this season? The priority has got to be the defence. You know, Of all the teams in the top 10, I think Chelsea lets in the most goals. Yeah. And that's not a good start to have if you're going to keep competing top four, keep competing for titles. So the priority has got to be to show up shop. Bring in a goalkeeper if you have to. Bring in solid defenders if you have to. It's been all season long. You get the feeling Lampard does not even know his preferred backline. So there's a, play, there's, a, there's a defender that's playing so well over a course of two, three games, and then he makes a mistake. Someone else comes in. You know, let's see what he can do. In the course of three games, he makes another mistake. Another person comes in. So the priority has got to be that defense line. So bringing a defender or two, well, there's been talk about Ben Chiwell at left back or uh, Tagliafico at left back, bringing a, a goalkeeper. The Kayabats deal, in my opinion, I've not, I've not been able to crack, you know, what exactly Lampard or Chelsea is trying to do with that transfer. The only explanation I have for it right now is probably the decision has been made already to let Jorginho leave the team. Because as, far, as much as I feel like even though he doesn't create so much going forward, he's the only person in that Chelsea side that can offer what he offers. No other person can offer. Can't they... saw Billy Gilmore replace him. Come on, come on, injury. come on. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was it was it was it was it was it was an atrocious decision in my opinion. That was one time only stopped by the injury. Because the coach kept on playing him. There is no way you are going to explain to me logically that Billy Gilmore deserves to start ahead of Jorginho. Uh, 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 it doesn't make any sense to me. But obviously, Frank Lampard maybe was beginning to get into his head that, you know, I've been using young players and they've been performing. You know, let me make another statement with Billy Gilmore. He's a, he's a very talented player, but I don't see any reason why you go into a Premier League game with some really physical size like Crystal Palace, you know, and then you play Billy Gilmore at, um, 
just in front of the defense line. Doesn't make any sense to me. You're putting the game at risk. So as far as I'm concerned, probably the decision has been made to let Jorginho go. That's why, you know, the club is thinking we want to bring in Kayavas. The Kayavas deal looks very much like it's going to happen. We're hearing a deal has been agreed between the club and the player for personal terms. Well, the, the discussion is just ongoing with the club to come to a, a, a favourable transfer fee. As far as I'm concerned, it does look like Chelsea have a lot of money to spend because already it's been $155 million on uh, uh, Hakim Ziyech and Timo Werner. Now it feels like they've got enough money to bring in Kayabats and then bring in a goalkeeper and maybe two more defenders. Uh, speaking of uh, defenders and defensive positions, uh, Chelsea certainly uh, would be in that conversation. Um, you, we've talked about Jorginho and Billy Gilmore. One of the other players that's been linked with Chelsea has been Declan Rice, uh, who has uh, had a, another good season at, at West Ham, albeit very uh, subtle, gone under the radar uh, for the most part. Um, is that a player you, you think Chelsea can do with? That's another, tra- that's another, you know, rumor that I've not been able to, <laughs> to understand. The only way I think you bring in Declan Rice if you're certain Barkley leaves the team. Hmm. If Barkley leaves the team. Uh, let's just look at his numbers uh, just for a quick bit. Because as far as tackles go, he's made 3.1 tackles, interceptions at two every game. Uh, he's made 1.1 fouls, uh, clearances 1.3. And uh, also he's made uh, 0.2 blocks. And he's second as far as uh, the list of of players in that regard go, guess who number one is, you know, for another season, uh, Wilfred Ndidi, yeah. uh, who, of course, tops uh, by a very towering number. As far as tackles go, Wilfred Ndidi per game makes uh, four tackles, interceptions 2.5, fouls 1.8, clearances 1.9, which is a, uh, an upgrade on what 1.3 Declan Rice has, and uh, blocks the 0.2. Uh, the other two on that list are Fabinho, who plays for Liverpool, and Rodri. So in terms of defensive covering, Wilfred Ndidi for three seasons in the Premier League, has shown that, you know, he's the most consistent at yeah. getting, screening the defence. Why, why he's, is he not in the conversation? We hear I mean, Arsenal. Isn't, isn't it surprising? Isn't it surprising that, you know, there was, there was a lot of conversation around Declan Rice moving to United at some point. Now, moving to Chelsea, you know, whereas in that same position, Indidi has done so well in the last three seasons. The other player that was coming close was Idris Agueye that left to PSG. Right, so uh, I, 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 I very much hope that Arsenal can go through with the Wilfred Ndidi transfer because they very much can do with a player like Ndidi. They very much can do with him. They need someone that's a tough tackler, that's a fighter in your midfield. At some point, it was Thomas Partey that was in the conversation for Arsenal. I don't think that's going to happen. But again, Wilfred is a, pers- is, is a player that has played in Premier League very solidly in the last three, four years. So how about you bring him in? He's going to absolutely take Arsenal to another level in that midfield. Because you look at Arsenal right now, they've got an amazing you know, set of players going forward. But you, when you look back at their midfield, you look back, back at their defence line, they sort of have that kind of baseline of a football team that you can bully at will at any time. And that's not the kind of team you want to have. Who needs him more? Uh, Arsenal or Chelsea? Who needs Wilfred Didi more? Who, I mean, we just read out the numbers and by far he's the best at screening a back four um, and whatnot. Who needs him more? Obviously, Arsenal, Arsenal needs Wilfred Didi more. Um, Kante has been injured a lot this just concluded season. Before this, two seasons ago, it was a different position under Mauricio Sarri. You know, but if he's fit, Kante can still very much come back to that, you know, uh, a position of, of, you know, being that defensive midfielder for Chelsea can still very much do the job excellently well. So it has to be Arsenal. Right now, they, I think what they have very close to, to a defensive midfielder is Granit Xhaka. Mm. And we can all admit that it doesn't come close to, you know, who a top team would play in that position. So obviously, Arsenal, by all means, should be breaking their necks to get with Freddie Didi. Uh, fantastic as far as the uh, transfer uh, rumours go. We'll keep an eye on all the transfer business uh, over the next uh, seven weeks of the summer. Remember, the Premier League season resumes on the 12th of September, runs for nine months until uh, May the 23rd, and the transfer window opens on Monday, which is today, a day after the Premier League uh, finishes. Let's just quickly wrap up with uh, another story in Italy, where Juventus clinched their ninth successive title and Mauricio Sarri's first league title as a manager. Two games to go. It's uh, been a good story for uh, Mauricio Sarri from a personal point of view. What are, your, what are your expectations of Juventus in the Champions League? Let's just wrap up with that. I mean, obviously, if I, if I was coach of Juventus, I would have won the title, as far as I'm concerned. You know, with how 
some of the other teams performed this season. Juventus were nowhere close to how effective they've been in the last five years. You know, but they won the title eventually because at some point, Lazio lost steam. Inter Milan became inconsistent. Atalanta also just lost steam at some very, very key uh, moments of the season. You know, so they were always going to win the title anyway. Their, their biggest contenders, uh, the biggest challengers this season were Lazio, mm. which, like I said, they lost steam at some point. So uh, going forward, it has to be, first of all, being able to achieve that invincibility that they had, you know, for the last five seasons yeah. in the Serie A. They've got to get back to that point be mm. because... This just concluded season was a case of you can get you, you can get something against Juventus. Yeah. If you play well enough, you can get a point. You can even get all three points. Wouldn't that get better as the seasons progress if they stick with him? Uh, I mean, the new manager, new system entirely might get a bit take a bit getting used to. Yeah. Wouldn't that improve the fact that you can score easily against Juventus? All things being equal, it's supposed to improve. That means you have all of the top players at the club on site. But there's been a bit of, uh, you know, cracks here and there. You know, a lot of conversation about maybe some of the players do not even appreciate how he plays, how he trains. So if that continues, if that is true, then it's a big problem. Mm. If all of the players are on side, obviously, how they play, their effectiveness improves as well. You know, they begin to play better. And I get the feeling if they're going to retain Mauricio Sarri, a lot of the players that they have currently in the squad will have to leave. A lot mm. of the unhappy players. We hear Rabiot obviously is extremely unhappy about not playing in, in, enough in the course of the season. Players like Ramsey as well. So you have to let some of these players go. Mm. You know, So at the end of the day, it's down to how well the players believe in his system and how well they're willing to, 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 to play for him. Right. Uh, speaking of which, let's get on to uh, two uh, final stories before we wrap up on uh, the podcast uh, today. Uh, Bukayo Saka has been one of the shining lights of this Premier League season. And uh, last week, Sky Sports reported uh, that he might be, he's in a limbo almost about where he should play international football, England or Nigeria. Uh, aside his comments, you know, about being in, in a difficult place to make a choice about his, his, his heritage and where he's lived all his life, where would you rather have him play? I mean, obviously, he's a talented player. I can't play for Nigeria. I mean... Um, but we, we, we also have to understand, especially the Nigerian football fans, it, for players like that, it's a tough decision. You know, that's the community where they grew up. You know, they don't really have that... Cultural link. Cultural link. They don't really have that relationship here. So it's, it, it's a bit of a culture shift to come play for Nigeria, be, begin to understand how the national team fold here works. You know, so we have to be able to cut them some slack at some point. That was why, I mean, the moment Tammy Abraham decided to play for England, we also have to understand that it's not easy to leave everything that you've known all your life and then to come play in the name of uh, patriotism, right? So for, uh, for Saka, like I said, he's a top player. I think he's the best winger Arsenal I've got right now. Uh, obviously, we'd want him to play for Nigeria, but obviously it's his decision as well. It's a tough decision, like I said. He's got to really probably speak to his family you know, be able to make a decision that's best for himself. Mm. Because when it's down to having a proper international career, then you might want to come play for Nigeria as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Because when you go play for England, the chances of, you know, having a long-lasting international career seem very bleak mm. because of the, uh, 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 the records and the statistics of, you know, players like him who have made decisions to play for England. So those are the options for him as far as I'm concerned. He's got to make a decision. Uh, got to make a decision, Saka. Uh, pretty much like what Alex Iwobi, uh, Victor Moses before him, and a couple of others um, uh, have done. Uh, if he comes, if he let's just uh, take it a step further now and uh, make a hypothesis of if he comes and plays for Nigeria, um, he's a small guy in many yeah, ways with great yeah. respect. Um, where does he fit into the team? African football is quite very, you know, physical. It is still very physical, and we have a at this point in time a bit of an overloading in the places where he might want to play. Yeah. Obviously, you would fancy Samuel Chukwese to Absolutely. be a right wing. Um, Moses Simon has been preferred by general in many ways. Joe Aribo has had a fantastic year once more at uh, Rangers. Where does he come in? Does he walk into the team? Does he come sit on the bench for a couple of games? Does he adapt? No, I, I don't think he walks into the team. I don't think he walks into the team. He, I mean, playing for the national team is solely on merit. So... If you're doing so well for your club side, chances are you come in and you start playing for the team straight up. But you look at the fact that Samuel Chukweze is doing well for Villarreal as well. He's got a new manager, so we have to see how he performs next season. Um, you've got 
now this is where I feel he might be able to slot in immediately. If he's ever going to get straight into the team, it would be on the left. You know, but because he's a, he's a left-footed player, I would prefer to play on the right. But Simon Chukwu is a more or less has that on lock already. Yeah. So you look at how you know Moses Simon has not could really be been good competition for someone. Could be good competition as well. But if he's doing well for Arsenal, then he might want to walk into the team directly. So maybe on the on the on the on the on the uh, on the left. But we've got Ahmed Musa, you know, in that position. We've mm -hmm. got Moses Simon in that position. There's uh, Samuel Kalu in that position as well. But you never complain of having more talent and having more quality coming to the side. Yeah. What do you want the German side, the German national team to, you know, you know, having Kai Havertz, uh, Timo Werner, and all of these solid players? Yeah. Remember, Leroy Sané didn't even go to the last World yeah, Cup. So, well. exactly. So, definitely, you never get tired of having quality in your side. So, in that regard, by all means, come play for Nigeria. Fantastic. As far as uh, Bukayo Saka, we're wishing him all the best. Uh, if he uh, gets to listen to the Hindsight podcast, we would certainly. Uh, be rooting for him to come play and do everything possible to make sure that uh, he understands the Nigerian culture. We're great people, so hey, I'm sure <laughs> he knows that already. Our final uh, award on the podcast today, uh, prediction for Saturday's FA Cup final. It is two London clubs. Who would be the part of London? Um, if Chelsea can pull up the same performance that they did against United in the semi-final, against Wolves in the last game of the Premier League season, even the, the performance against Liverpool, even though they lost, I think they would they would they would have too much for Arsenal. Because like I said, Arsenal have got such a very good, you know, uh, attacking side going forward. Uh, Pierre-Marie Aubameyang, absolutely amazing goal scorer. But when you look at the midfield at Arsenal, it feels like a midfield that you can run to the ground, that you can bully. You look at the defence line, there's always mistakes in them. The same can be said for the Chelsea, you know, back line, but even more so for Arsenal. You get the feeling there's one penalty or two in uh, a player like uh, David Luiz. Mustafi is injured now. Who's going to come in for him? We're not quite sure yet. So it's a bit of uncertainty. They do not have Leno as well. Um, they replaced my goalkeeper. I can't quite remember his name right Martinez. now. Martinez. He's done, he's done you know, reasonably well, you know, but I feel like there's a lot of uncertainty in how, in the, in the amount of mistakes or there's a lot of... Yeah, but Arsenal have won the FA Cup more than anybody in, in the last couple of, of years. Obviously, yeah. Chelsea have won more if you go back to 10 years. It's something they know how to win. Shouldn't that come for anything? I mean, we go back to that FA Cup final where Chelsea were favourites, but Arsenal defeated them, Alexis Sanchez and the rest. No, I mean, it should come for something on the mental side of things or on the psychological side of things. But at the end of the day, it's down to that 90 minutes on that pitch. It's mm. down to what you do on that pitch. It's down to how well you can cut out your mistakes. And Chelsea, like I said, if they can pull off the same performance that they did in the semi-final against United, and the game against uh, Wolves, they seem like the team that would have too much for Arsenal. In the course of the season, I think, you know, they, 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 they were the better side against Arsenal as well. So it, it's down to that 90 minutes. Can Arsenal rise up to the occasion against Chelsea? Mm -hmm. But let's see. I, I very much feel like it might, might go uh, uh, Chelsea's way. It might go Chelsea's way. Uh, as far as luckily replies, the thoughts go. Let us know your uh, opinions on that or your predictions on that FA Cup final uh, later uh, this week. It's been uh, the uh, longest football season I'm sure we have all seen in uh, in our lifetimes, but hopefully uh, it is the last longest football season and hopefully the Champions League brings uh, a lot more smiles on our faces because it's been a tough uh, 2020. Thanks guys for being a part of it. Thanks to Lock and Refi for being a part of it. Always, always. Fantastic. We'll see you on the next episode of the podcast. The Hindsight Podcast is in association with www.wolexis.com. Click on the 